Hi, this is Karen Kelly, and you're listening to An Appetite for Life. There's a great mix on this show with various topics, amazing guests, and the occasional celebrity guest. So welcome to the show. Today I'm talking to the gorgeous Kerry Danes. She's a registered consultant forensic psychologist, author and profiler on Faking It on the Discovery Channel. So welcome, Kerry. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, finally. It's so great to see you. It's just been too long, hasn't it? I think it was. It has been way too long, but life just gets so very hectic. But no, we've been trying to set this up for months. So it's fantastic to finally be talking to you. I think it's over a year, Kerry. I think it is. Yeah. (laughs) No, where's it all going to? Wow. So let's talk about what you've done so far then. So you've got 25 years of frontline experience. You were often invited and probably still are a psychological specialist in major police investigations. And as a trusted advisor to the British government regarding the safe management of high-risk individuals. Wow, sounds very, very proper, Kerry, very proper. It does, doesn't it, when you put it like that? It does. So how did you first get into the world of psychology? Is it it something you've always wanted to do, always been interested in? How did you fall into that? You know, entirely by accident, because I originally wanted to go into advertising. So I wanted to be an advertising executive. I think that I'd been told that you could make lots of money as an advertising executive. And I went to the careers counselling service at school. Now, this was a very working class Stockport school. Right. More of a more of a working class Stockport zoo, to be honest with you. And I don't think (laughs) they had very high hopes for their, you know, their their pupils and so I said I wanted to be an advertising executive and she kind of looked at me and, and shrugged and she said well you could always try an A-level in psychology then so I went and I did psychology at A-level at an open access college yeah and to be honest I nearly gave it up because it just didn't make any sense to me and then literally I don't know what happened I don't know whether my teenage brain just suddenly clicked But I woke up one morning and it made sense. So I went to university to study psychology, still in the hope of becoming an advertising executive. And then I always say that I became a forensic psychologist due to um, the effects of cheap cider and hormones. (laughs) Makes sense. Yeah. The first week at university, I had to choose what subsidiaries I would take. So what extra courses. And there was a very good looking boy in the law class. Very good looking. That, so would, I joined, do it. that would do it. <laughs> yeah, I joined the queue for the law class. I never, ever picked up the courage to speak to him. So for all those years, I never spoke to him. I just gazed at the back of his head, but I got very, very interested in the law. So I thought, well, how can I put the law and psychology together? And at the time, it was the early 90s. And so, you know, Cracker had just been on the television. Oh, yeah, of course. I've never watched it. I've never watched it. But I was aware of forensic psychology. Didn't really know what it was all about. And I thought, that's it. That's what I'll do. I'll become a forensic psychologist. But it must have been really hard to get into, though, because it's quite a, a, a unique niche, isn't it, really? It's a niche for that. Do you know what? It's like the Hunger Games. That's the only way that I can describe it. The amount wow. of obstacles, really, you've got to... 
become a psychology assistant before you then get on the training. Uh, it's very, very competitive. So, you know, most people will try three or four years in a row just to become a psychology assistant and, and not get anywhere. I think that for me, it was a combination of, I think just sheer persistence really, and luck. Yeah. Because what I did was, um, while I was at university, I went to the Volunteers Bureau and I thought, I really need to get something on my CV that sets me apart. So what can I do voluntarily? So I did lots of things. So I did victim offender mediation, where you get together somebody who say has, you know, burgled somebody's house with the people that they burgled. And then you let them thrash it out, hopefully not physically, just you know, verbally. I did counselling qualifications while I was at university and I started sitting in on police interviews as an appropriate adult and it was fantastic uh, experience for me. And so off the back of that, I did go and have a look around a secure unit and I just was very persistent. I kept writing to them saying, this is my CV. Would you have a look at it? Can you suggest that there's any gaps in the CV? You know, can you go through it with a red pen? And I think that eventually they gave me a job as an assistant psychologist just to shut Put me up. <laughs> yeah, really, they did. And they actually created that role for me, I think because they were having problems recruiting at the time and they thought, well, hang on a minute. We know somebody, we know somebody who's keen to be an assistant psychologist. Maybe that's the way forward. So I think there's definitely something to be said for it's not what you know, but who you know, or yeah, maybe definitely. a combination of both, really. And being persistent, though, and clearly knowing what you want to do, you weren't going to give up until you got, you know, into that industry, yeah. were you? You've got to go and you've got to kick some of the doors open, I think, because there's so few opportunities. Yeah, definitely. In that line of work, you know, and I'm sure that's true for many other disciplines that you've just got to be really very active. And I was really proactive about it. So you've written several books, two of which I couldn't put down. So there's What Lies Buried and The Dark Side of the Mind. Can I do a quick PR? There's the dark side you of the can, mind. You can. Fabulous. Yeah. Both brilliant books. And I also found another one, Kerry. Is there a psycho in your life? Yes. Is there a psycho in your life? And it's it's a very easy read. What I would say is a pop psychology book. And I wrote it years and years ago with my friend, Jessica Fellows. So um, I often say that I've written two books and I forget about that book because it was such a long time ago. And I think that a lot has changed in terms of probably my attitude, certainly to the label psycho. Yeah. And the way that I write. So the... You know, they're all easy reads. They're all very accessible reads. But certainly the dark side of the mind and what lies buried take you much further into the world of a forensic psychologist. Is there a psycho in your life? Was really a nod to how many people with psychopathic or dark triad traits yeah. are actually not in the prison system at all. They live amongst us and work amongst us and are our politicians. You know, I meet plenty of them in the media. It's scary. Isn't and we it? all it's say, don't we, that we've had a psycho ex-boyfriend. I mean, I, you know, whenever I talk about psychopaths, you can guarantee that there's a queue of women that want to speak to me at the end of it to tell me all <laughs> about their ex-boyfriends or husbands. Yeah, because you did have an experience, didn't you, at the prison that time? I read that read about that in your book. Yes. Um, well, my first ever job 
was as a very very naive I mean looking back really you know I was a I was an accident waiting to happen I think but I got my first ever job and it was voluntary at Wakefield Prison so yet again this is me trying to get my foot in the door so it was just before I got my first paid job and how old were you Kerry how how old were you then I was 21 wow so that's young yeah and Wakefield Prison is known as Monster Mansion in the media and that's because it's got an awful lot of um, people who are well men who are convicted of sex offences very very serious sex offences there are a lot of lifers also at Wakefield Prison it's known as one of the toughest regimes and the problems I had I would say were about three percent with the inmates and 97 percent with the prison officers because let's just say that in the early 90s I'm not speaking for it now but in the early 90s and this was 1996 so I remember distinctly, you know, the, the Spice Girls wannabe was number one at the time that I walked into or teetered into the prison on my high heel platform. Yeah, yeah. And um, the prison officers, let's say that they weren't that pleased to see me and I had a really difficult time with them. And I'd gone in there thinking, well, there are good guys and there are bad guys in this life. And the good guys are clearly identifiable because they're the ones in prison officer uniform. And actually, it didn't turn out to be that clear cut at all, because life isn't that clear cut. So actually, um, you know, I had a lot of harassment, a lot of harassment from the prison officers. And um, I did I did actually take one of them to um, to court and was successful. And it turned out that that group of prison officers involved a man called John Hall. He was the senior officer on Sea Wing at the time, and I used to work a lot on Sea Wing. And uh, a few years later, I saw him on my television screen because he was actually given a life sentence himself because he was responsible for the, the rape and abduction of various women and girls as young as 12 years old. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that's what he was doing in his spare time. In fact, he would commit offences on his way home from the prison and entice little girls into his car using his prison officer uniform. Oh my goodness, that's horrific, isn't it? Yeah, so those lines, you know, those lines are very, very blurred. This is it. We think that it happens away from us and it's a different class of person altogether. But it's really not the way the world operates. So your experience working in in prisons, especially Wakefield Prison, and you're saying you've only really had trouble uh, 3% from from the inmates. Did you ever feel threatened by the inmates at all? Yeah, yeah, oh gosh, yeah, yeah. Uh, There was one occasion where, um, you see, I was given this ridiculous job, it was a ridiculous job for a a 21-year-old, very naive, no training really in anything (laughs) apart from what I'd done voluntarily. And... um, I had to interview all of the men in the prison who had both raped and murdered a woman. I know. You must need a real tough outer exterior for that. Well, I used to blush, you know, so I hadn't quite worked on that yet. And I'm sure that everything that I was feeling was just written all over my face. And I used to go beetroot red. This is the, you know, redhead problems. And, um, I had to go through this interview that was very, very explicit. 
and I won't go into details, but there was a list of pretty much every sexual action that you can imagine and many that you probably can't imagine. And I certainly had to look up as a 21 year old and I had to ask them whether they'd performed this particular sexual act on the woman that they'd killed. And you can imagine that they were all asking me for, you know, can you explain that in further detail, miss? You know, it was ridiculous, yeah. really. It was like a, a call to an adult chat line for them, I think. And, you know, I was, I was navigating my way through it. But on one occasion, I was interviewing um, a man who had strangled a woman to death. And the prison officers had decided that they were going to go for lunch. And it'd be really funny if, unbeknownst to me, they locked the cell door. So when I'd finished the questionnaire and came to open the door, the door didn't open. And I knocked on the door and there was no response. And it was very clear to me and obviously very clear to the man I was locked in the cell with that we were alone in this cell. And you could see that I was frankly terrified. And you could see that he was really enjoying the fact that I was terrified. And he reached over and he actually tried to stroke down my neck with his finger. And of course, I moved away and said, don't do that, please. And it was other inmates who knocked on the door and said, oh, are you all right in there, miss? Uh, we're outside the door. Don't worry. You'll be coming out of there in one piece. And he's going to be very, very polite to you. Otherwise, we'll see him later. So they were essentially threatening the man right. that I was locked in a room with. So it was actually the other inmates in so-called monster mansion who protected me in that situation. So do you think the prison wardens were watching you from a CCTV camera for fun, do you think? No, there was no CCTV cameras in there. I think they knew that it would be very funny to, to do that. Uh, I think they knew that I would be scared. And the misogyny was, was rife. And I think that for the prison officers, you know, here was this young girl from university. Yeah. And I think that they imagined that I came from a very, very privileged background, which wasn't the case at all, because I come from a very working class background. Um, and I just I just think they thought, you know, oh, here's this do-gooder, because they always felt at that time that the psychologists were do-gooders. So did they feel threatened by your role? I think that there was a level of feeling threatened. There was a big there was a big level of misogyny you know within an, a few hours if if that of myself arriving at the prison they were already already running a book on which prison officer was going to ask me out and sleep with me so I just think that it was it was just downright woman hating really because you've got to think that this is predominantly staffed by young men at the time so men in their 30s and that would never happen now. There's no way you would ever get locked in a cell now with a prison. Well, you would hope not. You would hope not. This is it. I've not been back to Wakefield Prison for a long time, but I know that various things happened after I left. And I think that they started to get a handle on it. But it's also very dangerous for, you know, for the for the prison officers as well, because it's just not the mentality that that is what we encourage these days. It, it doesn't make for a safe safe environment for anybody.
No, not at all. Oh, Kerry, this is such intriguing stuff. We're just going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a few minutes' time. Let me introduce our sponsor, Everything Genetic Limited, specialists in preventative healthcare testing, helping people to identify to see if they are at risk of developing common hereditary cancers and heart conditions. Based in Nantwich, Cheshire, they partner with some of the UK's market-leading laboratories, supplying revolutionary genetic tests to healthcare providers and patients for the detection, diagnosis and treatment planning of cancer, heart disease and other illnesses. One of their main aims is to democratise genetic testing, meaning everyone can take control of their own well-being and healthcare to detect any problems at an early stage when they are most treatable. They also offer a COVID testing service which is on the government list, initially launched to support clinical partners who were unable to get patients in during the pandemic. This service enables patients to come back into clinics to resume all important cancer testing and is available through over 200 partner companies. They offer a comprehensive range of coronavirus COVID-19 test kits and services for individuals, healthcare providers and employers. For more information, visit their website, everythinggeneticlimited.co.uk. So welcome back. We're talking to registered forensic psychologist, Kerry Dane. So welcome back, Kerry. Hello. So I really want to talk about your books because I've read both of these fabulous books. I know we briefly touched on them before the break. What Lies Buried and The Dark Side of the Mind. So What Lies Buried, was that the first book you wrote? No, What what Lies Buried is the second book. So The Dark Side of the Mind, I suppose, is a potted career history. Yeah. And everything that I wanted to say about how the system is broken, the legal system is broken. And it became a Sunday Times bestseller. Amazing. So I, I had, you know, when I was writing it, I was just writing it as though I was talking to a friend. I never expected it to be well, read by anybody, I don't think. I just thought who would be interested in my reflections on just the everyday life of a forensic psychologist. You know, I don't think there's anything particularly dramatic in there, but I do appreciate that my, you know, my threshold for what is dramatic is maybe a little bit different to everybody else's. People love reading about this type of thing. Yeah. I don't know why it's like, you know, horror films and, uh, you know, the darker films. People just seem, they're intrigued by it. They want to know more about it, see how yeah. far they can kind of push But there's so many, there's so many books about serial killers yeah. and this kind of thing. The and programs. actually, I do, I have worked with serial killers, but there've been a very small proportion of the people that I've worked with. Thank God we don't have that many of them. No. So I just decided to write about the everyday life of a forensic psychologist and my experiences. And so I then got a contract for three other books. Wow. So What Lies Buried is is the second instalment, but you can read them in any order. It really doesn't matter. I think I did read them back to front, but like you say, it didn't make any difference. No. But what I loved was, that even though these individuals had created these horrific, um, you know, they, they, they've been horrific what they've done to people, uh, but they have a history themselves. So you really go back to their backstory and yeah. they wouldn't know better. Their upbringing was horrific and you really did get a, a great relationship. Well, maybe great's the wrong word, but you had an understanding, didn't you? Yeah, good, a good working relationship with people. I think that compassion is so important. And people go, oh, compassion, you know, oh, you're a do-gooder. 
but I think that when you read what lies buried, you maybe start to understand why compassion is, I think, the biggest quality, a most important quality that you can have as a forensic psychologist. And the title, What Lies Buried, people, I think people thought that maybe I was a pathologist, you know, that I was literally digging people up. Yeah. There is something that is physically buried in the book, but it's about what lies buried in somebody's history that has created the person that they are yeah. and has helped create the circumstances that they're in. And it's not about making any excuses for them or justifying their behavior in any way. It's just in the spirit of understanding. But it's also about what lies buried when you read newspaper and magazine articles and you think you know the story, but you really don't. There's always more to it. And I feel very privileged that I've been able to uncover really and, and really get to know what lies behind some really quite notorious offences. Yeah. I just think that if we talk about it more, then people will think a little bit more about the criminal justice system and what we really need to do in order to tackle crime. Because, yeah. you know, I let people make their own minds up, but it might not be about building new prisons and more prisons and longer prison sentences. It might be about tackling what actually goes on in people's childhoods and people's backgrounds yeah. that causes them to become the kind of people who then go on to harm others. So are there any particular individuals that really resonate with you? So when you were writing both of these books, because of course there's a few that I can think about, I can't remember their names now, there was one guy that um, I think he kept a pig in the end, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, everybody loves him, Isaac. Yes. <laughs> Isaac. But are there any that really kind of that you'll never forget because you really kind of really understood that person? It must have been quite a mixture of emotions when maybe they were charged because you knew the, the history behind him. Well, I usually I usually become involved with people um, after they've been convicted, although not always. Yeah. Um, and I know that there's certainly one story about somebody that I assessed before they went to court. And I felt that they were definitely suffering from psychosis, but the court disagreed and they were sent to prison. And I saw them years later, very, very, well, disturbed, suffering, hearing voices, paranoid, delusional beliefs. And, you know, I was so angry with the decision that the court had made. Um, but I mean, they, they all stick out to me in different ways. That's why I've chosen to write about them. Yeah. Because I've literally worked with hundreds and hundreds of people. So, you know, I've picked those stories that have really touched me in some way, shape or form. Isaac is a massive favorite. People always ask me, how is he getting on? How's the pig? Yeah, how's the pig? Because yeah. of course he got a job as well, didn't he? Well, you know, it's really funny, actually. I, I send all of my book chapters to my sister to read. And she wrote back to me, she said, that was a really uplifting chapter bearing in mind it involves a story about genocide because this is a story about somebody who was in a drugs rehabilitation facility and he had adopted a pig that had fallen out of a an abattoir van I think yeah, on the I side remember. of the road so he had this pig and you know the the pig made such a difference to his life and such a difference to I think everybody that was at that drugs rehabilitation unit yeah and I don't want to give too much away 
but Isaac was um, a Somalian. Right. Who, well, actually, he'd been born in this country, but his family were from Somali and he'd gone back to Somali for a while and terrible things had happened to him. And you you find out this story it unfolds. Yeah. As it unfolded for me, really, as we sat and looked after this orphaned pig. You know, and the conversations that happened around this pig. And yeah. I'm happy to report that he's very, very happy. He's working <laughs> on a community farm somewhere. As far as I'm aware, the pig is in fine fettle and has got lots of different friends. So, yeah, he's he is one that sticks out for people and he's, he's a happy ending. And I don't always get that many happy endings. So it's no. good to report when I do. So tell us what it was like working in the hospitals that you worked in. Because I know you had an, a little incident. I'm sure it's not the only one where you were you were stabbed, weren't you? Uh, well, that actually wasn't in hospital that I was stabbed. Um, it sounds very dramatic to say that I was stabbed. I was skewered. Skewered. Yeah, was it, yes. yeah. I, was, <laughs> I was impaled by a skewer or rather by a man holding a skewer. And it was in a forensic step down unit, which is like a halfway house. So he had been in a secure hospital, not for anything violent, actually, for setting fires. And um, something was happening that we weren't aware of. And I'm not going to tell you what was happening because I want people to read the book and find out for themselves. Yeah. But he was desperate for a move. And I think that he thought that if he caused carnage in the in the step down project, then he would be moved. And indeed that he was, but unfortunately that carnage involved him, as I say, putting a kebab skewer into me after dinner one day. So yeah, I ended up at uh, a hospital, but that was a very unusual day. I always say to people, you know, that was a very, very bad day. Yeah, like, I can not, imagine yeah, <laughs> being impaled. Yeah, being impaled, it's not ideal, is it? And then having to phone your own ambulance, I think that was what added insult to injury. So everybody started to panic. It wasn't the best. <laughs> best you had to call your own, your own ambulance. Why was that? Uh, because there was a, a, a new um, a new girl in the nursing office at the time and she oh. saw me come through the door with this big blood spot appearing on my nice white blouse. Oh my you know, God. And a kebab skewer half stuck in me and she <laughs> oh didn't God. know what to do. And she actually said to me, shall I pull it out? Oh my now, gosh, do more damage. Trained, if you've been first aid trained, this is absolutely not what you do. No. And so I lost all sense of professionalism at that time. And I kind of half growled, half spat at her to, she better not pull it out. And I think that she was absolutely terrified. And in the end, I just snatched the phone up and ended up calling my own ambulance because she was in such a state of panic, uh, really. So are so, you okay though? Is it didn't cause any long lasting damage, anything? Well, like I that? say that I was okay for a very long time. It really didn't make a great deal of difference, but I did have to have some scar tissue removed. And so that was um a few months ago. I had to have scar tissue removed and I'm still struggling really to eat. Oh, so the upside of that is I'm now one and a half stone down on my my lockdown flab. <laughs> But I'm hoping that that will uh, right itself after yeah. a while. So 
I do say in the book, oh, you know, it's no big deal, but they're yeah. not quite it anticipating. Does. I mean, really, the long-lasting effects afterwards, you must have thought, you know, afterwards, the shock, oh my goodness, I've just been, you know, impaled. Yes, what I know. Just reaction been, to that? Yeah, all I, it's strange, really. All I could think about was, we'd had chicken kebabs for, for tea that night, and the person who stabbed me was on washing up duty. And all I could think to myself is, I hope that's a clean skewer. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to have been stabbed with a chicken and saliva, you know, covered skewer. And also, it's really strange what bothers you. It's so yeah, odd. But Kerry, why would they be, you know, I'm not sure what year it was actually, but why would they have that kind of instrument in a hospital like that in a medical I don't think hospital. it was ideal and I think that they rethought about it later but this was a halfway house oh of course so it this was is yes. the next step into yeah. the community so he had been assessed as low risk right yeah and clearly that risk assessment wasn't quite right um having said that he had no history of of violence <laughs> at that time wow but as I say when you understand what was happening to him and the factors that might be involved you start to kind of get an understanding of why that might have happened and how that might have happened i don't want to give too much yeah, away but you would think about it differently wouldn't you yeah. wow. okay so let's talk about faking it how did you get that fantastic role of being a profiler that's incredible and is it on its sixth or seventh series now i think we're in i think we're in series six yeah and we're planning series seven but we've also got um, a number of specials that you can stream on discovery plus and they do eventually go on to quest red tv but they take a while so they're one hour specials and oh we've done i, I mean i can't even tell you how many of those we've done it has just been an absolute phenomenal hit it's one of the highest rated shows on discovery they're just starting to show it in america so we'll see whether it has the same impact in America. And I think that we've just hit on a format that works. Yeah. So faking it, as the title might suggest, is all about how people lie after they have committed very serious offences. So most of the people that we look at are people who maybe have killed somebody and then they go on television to make an appeal for the person that they've killed. You know that scenario, don't yeah. you? Oh, yeah. See, yeah. time and time well, again, and most people will say, it was him, it was him, it yeah, was Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, for example, Ian Huntley was one of the first episodes that we did, who, of course, went on television to talk about how he was the last person to have seen Holly and Jessica. Um, and equally, we've done Fred the Weatherman. Yeah. Fred the Weatherman has turned out, of course, to be... Yeah, I can't believe yeah, it. Yeah, a repeat sex So... And I think what makes it work is, yes, they call me the profiler. So I'm the broad brush. I tell the story, if you like, and I, I give my insights and I've got free reign. But we also work with the watcher, who is Cliff Lansley, and he picks apart the people's body language. And it's just fascinating. It really is fascinating, the little gestural slips and tells that somebody's telling porky pies. And Professor Dawn Archer, she does the linguistics, so we call her the listener. And she talks about the ways that they give themselves away, either in little Freudian slips or the way that they try and distance themselves from, from the people who they've killed. 
but you put it all together yeah and even though this is this is real scientific analysis you know it's all rooted in science and behavioral analysis it's all got you know lots of evidence and research papers behind it because there's an awful lot of what i call psycho bollocks in the in the field particularly of body language and there's none of that on faking it it's all the latest science the latest forensic knowledge so they'll be watching it over and over yeah. again won't they and just watching yeah. and analyzing oh, body language like you're saying that the way they're talking but and people the love it you know it's got a format and i think that people are very comfortable with the format and people like to learn from it and play along at home and we get so many messages from people saying, oh, I'm so much better now at being able to spot where my, you know, where my son or my daughter is lying to me or my boyfriend or my girlfriend. And so, you know, I think people just like to almost play along with it at yeah. home. So I think people love to be armchair detectives, don't they? So they become armchair profilers, armchair linguistics, armchair behavioral analysts. And I think I think in this epi in this series as well, you uh, talk about Sarah Everand and Wayne Cousins, yes. and of course R. Kelly as well, don't you? Yeah. So R. Kelly is available to stream now. Right. I think that was one of our darkest specials. I really do, and I always say, you know, this is very tongue in cheek, but I'm I'm very happy when we do an episode or a special that doesn't involve somebody having been murdered. You know, crime, true crime programs don't have to be somebody being killed. No. But obviously nobody is killed in the R. Kelly episode, but you find out just the depths of this man's version, really, and his yeah. need to humiliate young girls, but also how it was in plain sight, very much like Jimmy Savile, in plain yeah. sight, people absolutely knew what he was doing and they enabled what he was doing because he was making an awful lot of money for the record label but you know we, we look at some of the lyrics of his songs we look at the interviews that he gives uh we look at an interview that he gave with a girl called alaya who was a 14 year old r&b artist who he was sexually abusing and they're both interviewed and it's very very interesting to watch the body language and how he evades any questions about their relationship you know and to realize that this is happening in plain sight and you know it's a really good opportunity to say this cannot happen again we need to be aware of this kind of thing and is that all available to download now you say that it's episode available to stream on discovery plus and we've got specials there about donald trump Wow, that would yeah, be interesting, Trump, Gary, Glitter, it? Gary Glitter, Jimmy Savile. So if you're a child of the 70s, like I, yeah, I am, well, yeah, yeah, go and watch those. And then we've got we've got the murder of Grace Mullane, which obviously happened while she was, um, you know, on her year out uh, down under. And that is that's a real, a really emotional one actually they're all very very different they're yeah. all very different but you know go and have a have a look at them and see what you think definitely so before we go kerry let's talk about crime con i didn't even know that sort of thing existed i know it's amazing isn't it crime con as in crime convention we don't go and commit crimes it's like comic con yeah so everybody yeah. who's anybody from the world of crime 
is there. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, what is this going to be? Is this going to be like a celebration of, of serial killers and crime? Because that's really tasteless, but actually right. it's very victim focused. Right. So now we do the British version. We have a weekend in London every year and we're just going to Glasgow in September just for the day but we're going to dip our toe in the water in Scotland and hopefully we'll be there next year as, as well. And we do some fascinating panels. So I've done panels with Colin Sutton, who you might know from The Real Manhunter. Yeah. Or Manhunt, Manhunt uh, the, yeah. the drama on ITV. He's yeah, brilliant. By, um, uh, Martin Clunes plays him. Yes, it was a brilliant. But anyway, yeah, yeah. You see, I, Colin Sutton, legendary copper, all round good guy friend of mine and we did a panel on how he caught uh, the night stalker otherwise known as delroy grant and we've also done um panels where for example i was in conversation with the family of tashan daniels who appeared in an episode of murdered at first sight which yeah. is on sky tv and i'm the series expert for murdered at first sight and just talking about Tashan and who he was and how he was killed, chosen, you know, randomly by two angry men killed in broad daylight on a plane, plane platform. Shocking. And it is very, very shocking. And it really does give a platform for, for victims and it's done in a very tasteful way. Yeah. So if you are a true crime fan, you can come to that, you know, meet lots of interesting people and lots of true crime fanatics as well there's a real kind of community feel about it but not have to feel that it's in any way sordid or yeah 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 tasteless. yeah because yeah. i wouldn't wow. i wouldn't be involved in anything like that wow oh kerry i could talk to you forever you're gonna have to come back on at another time i would love to and let's not brilliant. leave it a year let's not leave it a year let's not leave it a year so for our listeners uh, well first of all thanks so much for joining us today but for our listeners where can we get the book from and is it on the crime con is there a website or where we can yeah, find the date crime con, if you go to crime con uk so i'm assuming it's www.crimeconuk but if you just yeah. pop that into google there are still tickets left if you are in scotland and you can come up to Glasgow for the day. And my books, as they say, are available in all good bookshops. And if you don't mind Amazon, then I think the probably best price is on Amazon yeah. at the moment. But yeah. you can also get them, I think, at a bargain price at the works, you know, various places, various places. Wonderful. Well, I wish you all the best with the new series of Faking It. And I'm sure we'll chat again in the future. I hope so. Thank you. You've been listening to An Appetite for Life, also sponsored by Dame Bank House Dental Practice, where happiness starts with a smile. They offer a full range of preventative and restorative dentistry, including cosmetic treatments, facial rejuvenation and dental implants. They also follow a minimal intervention approach, so book in for a smile review today. You can visit their website at www.damebankhouse.co.uk or call them direct on 01270 665 774. If you have any questions about the show, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can visit my website, www.karenkellypodcast.co.uk or send me an email at letstalk at karenkellypodcast.co.uk.